Cool. Well, before we uh, dive into the word, uh, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, we ask for your help uh, this morning in understanding our passage. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word. Lord, would you speak to us by your spirit, Lord, and would you just uh, give me strength uh, and energy to get through uh, this message, Lord. We just ask that you would show us more of you now. Uh, It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the late 1200s, a man named William Wallace was born in Scotland. You may recognize his name from the award-winning movie Braveheart. There's uh, lovely Mel Gibson as William Wallace, and there's a historical rendition of him. Uh, He was born a man of humble beginnings uh, who went on to be recognized as a national hero in his home country of Scotland for his efforts in the struggle to be free from English rule. Wallace led his men in battles against the English army in situations where the odds were repeatedly stacked against them, and yet he continued to bring victories against the English. While all the details of Mel Gibson's rendition may not be totally accurate, uh, it is true that in August of 1305, Wallace was arrested, taken to London, condemned as a traitor uh, to the king, and sentenced to hanging and a gruesome treatment of his body after death. Wallace maintained through it all that he could not be tried for treason or called a traitor as he had never sworn allegiance to King Edward of England. William Wallace was a hero in his country for his dedication to the pursuit of freedom for Scotland from English rule. And this morning, we're going to continue to work through our series in Galatians called Free, and we're going to see that Paul similarly is a hero in our story as he defends our freedom in Jesus Christ from the Judaizers' imposition of a works righteousness. Over the past several weeks, we've seen that Paul is sharing with us the story of his travels around the biblical world, and his journey has us this morning in the city of Antioch of Syria. As we saw last week, uh, Paul has just discussed his interaction with uh, an affirmation by James Cephas, who is also known as Peter, uh, John, and Barnabas. Having fellowship with these apostles and church leaders would have helped to confirm the legitimacy of the gospel message that Paul had been given from Jesus on Damascus Road. Look, he said, I'm not some rogue preaching this message of Jesus all on my own. These other guys, guys you've heard of and trust, I'm with them. They've confirmed what I have received is true. These pillars in the church have extended the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and I. Sometime after this interaction in Jerusalem, Paul finds himself in Antioch working with Barnabas and ministering to Gentile Christians there. That's our text for this morning. Well, if you've seen the movie Braveheart, you know that eventually Scotland, under the leadership of Robert the Bruce, wins their freedom from England. You can imagine there were some questions upon finding out that this uh, country was now free. One of the first was probably something like, uh, now what? That very topic is what drives our text this morning. You, Christian, have freedom in Christ. Now what? If you haven't already done so, would you open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21, as Jeff just read for us? It's on page 1032 uh, in the Worship Center Bible. Otherwise, you can open up your own. If you're on digital, a digital version, I'll be preaching from the Christian Standard Bible, or CSB, this morning. As we work through, uh, we're first going to dive into a confrontation of Peter in verses 11 to 14, and then we'll try and digest a reflective confession by Paul uh, in verses 15 to 21. 
As Jeff just read for us, uh, our text this morning opens with a pretty strong accusation about Peter from Paul. Paul says he opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. What would cause Paul to confront so strongly the man upon whose person and confession Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church? Peter led the charge in taking the gospel forth all throughout the book of Acts, the first among equals as the small band of brothers preached Jesus day after day. Just a few verses earlier, Paul cites his relationship with Peter as evidence of legitimacy of his ministry, and now he's being publicly called out for his actions regarding the gospel. We're going to see this morning that Peter's behavior in Antioch was causing early believers, even early church leaders like Barnabas, to struggle with the sufficiency of the cross for their justification. This was a big deal for Paul, and it's a big deal for us today. Oh, sorry. So let's look at the confrontation of Peter uh, in verses 11 to 14. If you'd look there with me. It says, But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, If you, who are a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? What in the world is going on here? Well, Peter joins Paul and Barnabas in their ministry in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas have been here for about a year ministering to the Gentile, that is, non-Jew, church. We're told in Acts chapter 11 that the church is large in numbers and that it was in Antioch uh, that the disciples were first called Christians. So there's good ministry going on here. So Peter himself is a Jew, but his practice as he's doing ministry and living in Antioch is to eat with his Gentile brothers and sisters, a group ethnically different from him who did things a little differently. See, under the Old Testament law, there were all sorts of things that Jews, uh, God's chosen people, couldn't touch or eat, things like pork and shellfish and insects. And when God instituted these purity laws, it wasn't because he wanted to deny his people the delight of good smoked bacon, uh, but because he needed his people, the nation of Israel, to stand out, to be a light for the nations. But when Jesus came, all that changed. No longer did the nation of Israel need to concern itself with purity laws. They were covered by the purity provided only by the shed blood of Christ. In fact, the truth of the gospel was that the laws found in the Old Testament were holy and righteous and good, but could never save a man to begin with. Romans 7 tells us the law existed so that our sin might be shown to us and our need for a savior would be clear. In other words, the law came just so we could see how messed up we are and how far short we fall of God's standard set for holiness. Our holiness and purity had to come from an outside source because we could never meet God's demands on our own. Peter knew well that the outside source he needed was Jesus. The righteousness God demanded is given to the one who puts their faith in Christ. Peter knows this. He confesses Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah and Savior and knows that the way he is made right before God, the way he's justified, has nothing to do with his work and 100% to do with the work of Christ on the cross. This is a truth that we rest in today. 
Jesus is sufficient. Peter knows all this, and yet the text tells us when certain men from James came, Peter's behavior changes. Who were these certain men? Paul tells us they were from the circumcision party. Up until now in our sermon series, uh, they've been referred to as the Judaizers. It's the same group, the circumcision party and the Judaizers. They are those Jews who would say, yeah, we know it's Jesus, but it's Jesus and. It's Jesus and circumcision. It's Jesus and the purity laws. Pastor Dan talked about these people at length the past couple weeks. It's Jesus and a little bit of works mixed in, and then you will be declared righteous in the sight of God. Peter knows all this is wrong, and yet his behavior changes when these men show up. Why? Why did Peter do this? Because he feared those from the circumcision party, verse 12 says. He wanted to look good in front of his Jewish brothers. What was the result? What was the result of Peter's fear? Other Jews followed his example. Even Barnabas, the man who ministered to this Gentile church for a whole year, was led astray by Peter's hypocrisy. Paul says, When I saw they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, that were justified by faith in Christ alone, I confronted Peter in front of everyone. You're a Jew acting like a Gentile, Paul says, as you should. We know that you don't have to maintain the Mosaic law anymore. How can you tell Gentiles to add laws to their practice in order that they might be justified? You can picture Paul pleading with Peter in front of the crowd that is now gathered. Peter, we know you. We know your practice is to eat with Gentiles. Look, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. It's good. We've been set set free by Jesus to have fellowship in the gospel. So why are you doing this? Why are you, a Jew who eats with Gentiles, suggesting that Gentiles need to follow the laws that you don't even follow? Peter, this is dangerous, and it's not what the gospel you confess is about. Don't you see what you're doing? All these men and women, your brothers and sisters in Christ, are being misled. They're following your example, and they're missing out on the freedom they could have in Christ. Peter's issue was sort of unique to the first century context, right? It was about breaking purity laws and ethnic differences in Jews and Gentiles. Well, what does that have to do with us 2,000 years later? Well, divisions in the church negate the truth of the gospel even today. Divisions in the church negate the truth of the gospel even today. The gospel says we are brothers and sisters free in Christ, free to enjoy him and his good gifts, free to come to him as we are broken and sinful in need of grace that's found poured out at the cross. The Judaizers, the circumcision party, and in this case, Peter and his actions were telling people they needed to confess Jesus and do a little extra to gain salvation. I think if we're honest, there's a little bit of us that resonates with the Judaizers. Every now and then, I have a little mini existential crisis in my mind. And fair warning, you're about to get a glimpse behind a curtain uh, that maybe you didn't want to see behind, but uh, here we are. Uh, Sometimes, late in the night or early in the morning or when I'm a little too sleep-deprived, I think about what's going to happen when I die. And can I get really honest for a second? Sometimes that scares the daylights out of me. Am I confident in what Christ has accomplished on my behalf on the cross? 
Absolutely. Do I know and believe with all that I am that my justification is covered and that Jesus has me in his hand and my righteousness is 100% about what he did and 0% about what I did? Yeah, I believe that with all that I am. And yet, when the rubber hits the road, I flake out. I start making deals with God in my head. I start wondering if I'm really going to make it because I probably didn't read my Bible enough because I haven't shared my faith with enough of my family or friends or neighbors or coworkers, because I haven't done enough discipling my kids, because I haven't been baptized the right way, the list goes on and on. So if you're anything like me, when that happens, you find yourself squarely in the place of Peter, letting yourself believe the lie that you haven't done enough to earn your salvation. And you know what? You haven't. But Jesus has. Did you hear what we just sang? It is finished. It is done. Christ is risen. His grace is my salvation. The crazy thing is what we do next. Not only do we ourselves step outside of the grace of God, we make sure that the people we interact with, our brothers and sisters, step outside with us. Sometimes it never leaves our own heads, but uh, sometimes it does. You know, Your sister says she's a Christian, but I don't think I've ever heard her mention Jesus in a conversation. Or that guy that sits down the pew from us, I mean, I heard him say he struggles with, insert sin here. I mean, can you even be saved if you've got that one? Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of freedom in the cross, not bondage to a works righteousness that will always find us wanting. And so as Paul confronted Peter to his face, I want the spirit of this message to confront us. Where in your life have you become like a Judaizer? Is it toward yourself? Have you, like me, found yourself trusting in your own works for salvation rather than resting in the freedom found in Christ? Or have you put up hoops for your brothers and sisters to jump through, whether out loud or in your mind? Church, let those things be washed away. Paul has confronted Peter boldly with a challenging truth. You are deviating from the truth of the gospel and you're leading others astray. But then the focus of the text shifts a little bit, away from confrontation and into confession. So let's move on to verses 15 to 21, where we'll see a reflective confession by Paul. We'll start with verses 15 and 16. It says, We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, and yet because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. So as Paul, uh, sometime after this Antioch confrontation, reflects on his encounter, he says, look, Peter, we're Jews, right? We've got the advantage of knowing the law over those Gentile sinners, uh, as they were often condescendingly called, those non-Jews who don't know the law, who didn't grow up memorizing and learning and reciting its truths, who don't follow the purity laws. We're Jews. We've got the advantage here in knowing what God required, right? But Peter, we know a person can't be saved by doing those works of the law, so even we have put our faith in Jesus. Why? Why have we placed our trust in this Jesus instead of keeping the laws? Because we know the laws can't justify. We know we can't do it on our own. It's 
only by Jesus that we can achieve this justification. Even we who know the law know this, especially we who know the law know this. And so, as I, to- as I said when I confronted Peter, why would we try and add those laws back in? Why would we willingly go into bondage that cannot save instead of accepting the freedom that Christ offers? Why would we tell others that they need to do something else to be saved? I want to pause here for a second because I worry that something might happen as we work through this sermon series. If you're a baseball fan, you know that the season opened up on Thursday of last week. And in case you're wondering, the Cubs did win their opener I know you were all wondering. Uh, Either way, whether you're a baseball fan or not, I'm confident that nearly everyone in this room has heard of this guy. Uh, His name is Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth was a legendary baseball player who spent his entire career in Boston and New York. He ranks among the all-time leaders in home runs and extra base hits, and yet Babe Ruth was fixated on the foundational things of baseball. One might think that at some point in his career he'd have gotten bored with the small things, things like bunting. But Ruth didn't. He didn't ever get beyond the fundamentals because, as all players do, Ruth understood that if a player ever thought they were done growing in the fundamentals, that their career would soon come to an end. And so, Ruth, one of the greatest natural born athletes in all of sports, was obsessed with fundamentals. Well, Paul, as you'll come to see throughout Galatians, is obsessed with Jesus and the freedom that's found in him. Our series is very appropriately titled, Free. My concern is that we as Christ's body might become bored of hearing the gospel, of talking about the good news and its implications. There's this thing that happens in the church sometimes where we begin to think of the gospel as something that's for unbelievers, And it is, but if we stop there, we miss out. The gospel isn't simply a tool for conversion. The gospel of Jesus is a truth that we must saturate ourselves with day after day, night after night, year after year. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, this good news of justification, of being declared righteous before God, of forgiveness of sins and freedom from death and shame and eternal suffering, the message is for you. And if you're here this morning and you've been a believer for a little while, this good news is still for you. And if you've been a Christ follower for years upon years, and this idea that you've gotten bored with the gospel has crept into your thinking, pray earnestly that the Spirit would root out the foolish idea that you could ever get past the gospel in all its glory. I'm not telling you this to keep your attention during my message this morning. Uh, If you need to zone out, I get it. Pastor Dan isn't listening right now, so we can all admit that every once in a while uh, we need to zone out. That's okay, but, but friends, don't ever settle in a place where you think you're beyond the gospel. You're not. You can never be beyond the good news of Jesus. And so Paul continues in verses 17 and 18. He says, But if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild rebuild those things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. Paul next answers a question that apparently the Judaizers were raising during this whole fiasco. The argument goes something like this. You, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, you're saying that you're justified by Christ, and yet you're sinning. You're violating the law of Moses, and you're not behaving like a Jew should. 
This Jesus, he's not a real savior. Quite the opposite. He's causing you to break the law. Paul says, no way. Jesus isn't a promoter of sin at all. Quite the opposite. When you reintroduce law-keeping as a means of salvation, you're rebuilding the structure that was torn down by Jesus. The only thing that law-keeping can do is show me that I can't keep the law. He goes on in the last three verses of our text where everything comes together. And finally, Paul answers our question, now what? We who are Jews and know the law know we are not justified by the law and never could be, but only by Jesus Christ. This practice of rebuilding the laws as a means of merit before God is pointless. The only thing it does is show us how unable we are to keep God's laws and how unrighteous we really are. I have freedom in Christ. Now what? Let's look back at verses 19 through 21. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Paul says, I live my life for God because I'm dead to the law. I've been crucified with Christ, so it's no longer I who live but he lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live not setting aside the grace of God. At first glance, this passage might seem like a motivation towards sanctification, a motivation toward us becoming more and more like Jesus as we conform our patterns of living to what he's called us to, right? I died to the law. I've been crucified with him so that I might live for God, and now he lives in me. It sounds like Paul is reminding us that we have an obligation to live in light of the reality of what Jesus has done for us. And we do. And he is. But how specifically does Paul want us to live according to these verses? I think what Paul is doing in his wrapping up of this reflection is, once again, reminding us of the need for sinking deeper and deeper into the freedom found only in Christ. The law is no more. It can't save me. I have died with Christ, and it is he who lives in me, and it is only he who can save me. Did you know that that's true? That when you surrender to Christ, God literally comes and lives inside you? It's an absurd reality and an absolutely ridiculous outpouring of grace. Not only do you no longer have to do this life alone, you're also completely covered by that indwelling. See, when the Spirit comes and lives in you, you're categorically changed. When the Father looks at you, he no longer sees you as something dirty, as something sinful, as someone who can't have a relationship with him. No, he sees you as he sees his Son, perfect in righteousness, lovely because he loved you, his true Son, his true daughter. So how does Paul want us to live? In light of that reality sinking deeper and deeper into the truth that nothing we do can save us and that we are secure in the one who loved us and now lives in us. Verse 21 concludes our text this morning with a summary and a reminder and a prayer for each one of us as we go. Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. He says, I don't set aside the cross by adding things that I have to do to find favor with my loving Father. Because if that favor, if that 
love, if my adoption as his son or daughter came by anything I had to do, then Christ died for nothing. But since we know that salvation through the law is not possible, the only possible alternative is justification through Jesus Christ alone. William Wallace is a hero in Scotland because of his efforts in the fight for freedom from the rule of England. We looked at Paul, and we look at him, and we see a hero as he defends our freedom in Christ from those who would seek to take it away, adding a list of rules we must follow, and in doing so, making the death of our Savior insufficient and worthless. I want to challenge you this morning to do as Wallace and the Apostle Paul did and take up the fight for freedom. Take up the fight for freedom in Christ in your own hearts. Freedom from the bondage of do more, work harder, earn your place at the table. Freedom from the idea that our salvation has anything to do with what we bring. Fight for the freedom that says, I am free from sin and death and pain and shame and eternal suffering only by the blood of Jesus. He is enough. If you're here this morning and you've been struggling with this, maybe you haven't placed your trust in Jesus yet. Maybe you have, but you've seen a growing list in your heart of things you have to do to be confident in your relationship with him. Before I conclude our time together in prayer, I just want to give you a minute to go before the Lord. If you haven't given your life to him and you want to taste true freedom, let this morning be the morning. And if you have, but you need help, you need him to remind you of your identity and the sufficiency of the cross, let that time be now. I'll invite the worship team back up right now, and while they come, I just want to give you a moment to have a conversation with your father. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for the sufficiency of what you accomplished for us on the cross. We praise you for the reality that where we all fall short, you have made a way. And would you help us to rest in that truth as we go forward? Would you give us confidence in who you are and strength as we fight against the enemy who whispers to us that we need to do more? Lord, root out any hint of works righteousness in our hearts and let us sink deeper and deeper into the glorious freedom that we found in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.